The following is a lesson in a series on life, liberty, and property brought to you by Republic Keepers and is presented and discussed by the Attorney General of the Republic State of Texas, Chaplain Raymond. This lesson discusses a book by the same name, Life, Liberty, and Property, written by Charles A. Wiseman, of which can be purchased at his website, seek-info.com, at amazon.com, or small bookstores such as Brave New Books in Austin, Texas. The ISBN number for this book is 0-966-8921-9-4. Life, Liberty, and Property is an educational series for sovereign souls on the dry land, and the information about fundamental law and the unwritten constitution cannot be utilized by those individuals that are domiciled in the District of Columbia. To understand your domicile status, please review the two constitutions, two domiciles document on republickeepers.com. We hope you enjoy this lesson on life, liberty, and property. All right. Continuing in Chapter 5 of Life, Liberty, and Property by Charles Wiseman, we're addressing the chapter with the, with the subheading that begins the American Revolution. Um, <clears throat> due process of law was a major theme underlying the causes for the American Revolutionary War. The King and Parliament had repeatedly violated the basic rights of the colonists through the acts and decrees that were not by the law of the land. The Declaration of Independence lists some of the many due process violations that were committed under King George. When the English officials in Boston decided to enforce the Navigation Act by means of arbitrary general search warrants, the stage was set for the opening scene of the American Revolution. Although these warrants or writs of assistance had been used in the mother country, the merchants of Boston were not about to permit, without a legal battle, any promiscuous invasion, search, or seizure of their property. The 39th chapter of Magna Carta was used by the American Revolutionary Patriots, Patriots James Otis and John Adams, against the writs of seizure, as well as against the Stamp Act, the custom duties, and the quartering of troops. They viewed such acts to be unlawful according to the law of the land. The colonists asserted that the primary, absolute, natural rights of Englishmen, as frequently declared in Acts of Parliament from the Magna Carta to this day, are personal security, personal liberty, and private property. Public interest had seldom been so aroused as it was in 1761, when Paxton, the collector of the Port of Boston, applied for writs from the Superior Court of Massachusetts. The argument of the lawyer James Otis against the writs made a powerful, popular impression. In his arguments in this case, Otis went to the very heart of the difficulties of parliamentary control over the colonies. Otis cited the words of Lord Cook, in Dr. Bonham's case, 
and insisted that regardless of the question of representation, the power of Parliament was not unlimited. He went even further by laying down in the clearest possible language the doctrine of judicial review, contending that when acts of Parliament were contrary to natural equity or the Constitution of England, the executive courts must pass such acts into disuse. Otis coupled this line of reasoning with Magna Carta, citing the law of the land provision as a part of the fundamental law of the English Constitution which courts must enforce. Although Otis was unable to convince the court, the effect of his argument on the colonists was electrical. Otis at once jumped into tremendous popularity. When the issue of the arbitrary writs were granted, Otis thundered that everyone with this may be a tyrant. Later, John Adams commented on this stand and declaration by Otis saying, Then and there was the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there, American independence was born. The colonists knew, knew, knew no way of resisting the writs as they were le deemed legal by the courts. Yet they knew that they were in direct violation of due process of law. They were not a writ original at common law. The spirit of revolution was now beginning to show itself. The occasion for the next protest, which was to involve the question of due process of law, was the levying of the Stamp Act in 1765. The Stamp Act was so unpopular that it was soon evident it would be impossible to enforce. The Act provided that a stamp be placed on most all paper used. One of its provisions was that all offenses against the Stamp Act could be tried in any part of the colonies instead of at the scene of the offense and in the Vice Admiralty Court without jury. The court was to consist of one judge appointed by the Crown whose salary should be paid by those whom he condemned. Thus, a judge was motivated to condemn the innocent, support a corrupt legal system, and defy true law. For his salary depended upon doing so, much as it does today. It was the claim of James Otis and Samuel Adams that the fundamental character of the British Constitution was quite generally recognized as being unalterable by simple parliamentary fiat. They based their authority partly on Coke and Locke and partly on the doctrine of rights reserved to the people. Others argued that the act was void as against Magna Carta, which was the heart of the fundamental law and hence must be considered as unalterable because it summed up principles of the English Constitution and inherent rights of Englishmen. Samuel Adams 
writing in the Boston Gazette, clearly indicated the viewpoint of advocating resistance to laws which were unconstitutional, and cited for his authorities not only English writers, but works on civil and natural laws as well. He wrote of principles of due process in his article stating, Magna Carta is affirmed by Lord Cook to be declaratory of the principal grounds of the fundamental laws and liberties of England, and thus cannot be altered by any of its essential parts without altering the Constitution. Mr. Hume says, the only rule of government is the established practice of the age upon maxims universally assented to. I think it follows that an act of Parliament made against Magna Carta in violation of its essential parts is void. The colonists regarded many of the taxes unlawful as they were not levied under principle of consent and representation. And since this was an established maxim of law, it was the taking of property contrary to Magna Carta and the law of the land. In the November of that same year, 1772, Samuel Adams wrote a pamphlet in which he clearly expressed the rights of the colonists and the law that Parliament was bound to keep. The absolute rights of Englishmen and all free men, in or out of civil society, are principally personal security, personal liberty, and private property. The legislative have no right to absolute arbitrary power over the lives and fortunes of the people. The legislative cannot justly assume to itself a power to rule by extempore arbitrary decrees, but it is bound to see that justice is dispensed. These are some of the first principles of natural law and justice, and the great barriers of all free states and of the British Constitution in particular. It is utterly irreconcilable to these principles and to many other fundamental maxims of the common law, common sense, and reason that a British House of Commons should have a right at pleasure to give and grant the property of the colonist. Now what liberty can there be where property is taken away without consent? Here, Adams was challenging the British Parliament's right of seizure of their property. He asserts that in order to be lawful, such acts must conform to the established principles of justice and the fundamental maxims of the common law. This is exactly what due process of law is in its nature. The requirement that the actions of government proceed by known and establish law when affecting the liberty or property of citizens rather than by arbitrary modes which it devises by itself for itself. In all their disputes and conflicts with the British government, the patriots of the revolutionary period 
rested their cases on the fundamental rights of Englishmen according to the unwritten British Constitution, which they regarded as the law of the land and as such was immutable. It matters not how legally accurate they were in their interpretation of Magna Carta and its 39th chapter for the important consideration in regards to the meaning of due process of law. It is what the founders of our country considered the content of that phrase to be. Their appeal was actually more to the spirit of the Great Charter than to particular parts of it. It was the Founders' opinion that their rights of life, liberty, and property could not be deprived or annulled by the acts of government or by laws passed for that purpose which accomplished that result. They viewed their rights of liberty and property to be free from all encroachment except by the consent or the established processes and maxims known under the common law of England. Thus, in the Declaration and Resolves of the First Continental Congress, October 14, 1774, it was asserted <clears throat> Resolve, two, that our ancestors who first settled these colonies were at the time of their immigration from the mother country entitled to all the rights, liberties, and immunities of free and natural-born subjects within the realm of England as a consequence of possessing these ancient rights the colonists declared that many statutes and acts of Parliament were unjust and cruel as well as unconstitutional and most dangerous and destructive of American rights. The English government was attempting in many cases to circumvent the law of the land and to tear away established rights and principles of law from the unwritten Constitution the cornerstone of English liberty. It was this political usurpation, subversion, and tyranny that led directly to the American Revolution. The Declaration of Independence may be looked upon as the culmination of the protest raised by the early Americans against the unlawful and arbitrary actions of the King and Parliament in deviating from the law of the land. The doctrine that whatever law Parliament enacts is the law of the land continued to be the main issue of contentions up to 1776. It is this packed practice of tyrannical legislatures which is now again destroying the life, liberty, and property of citizens. With one or two notable exceptions, all of the pamphlets and resolutions mentioning the Great Charter and due process of law were published before July 4, 1776. The constitutional struggle of the colonies 
over the meaning of due process of law was practically ended in 1775 when the resistance to royal authority caused many of the governors to flee to the decks of waiting warships, leaving the government in the hands of self-constituted committees of correspondence. The meaning and intent of the phrases law of the land and due process of law, which they had acquired by July 4, 1776, was complete and is their meaning today. They cannot be changed by judges or legislators. It was these phrases and their meaning that the freedom fighters transferred to the American state constitutions of 1776 and 1777 and the U.S. Constitution. Thus, the due process clause which was adopted in each of the original and succeeding state constitutions, though verbally different, have all the same legal effect. The common law rights and fundamental principles of judicial procedure, whether in civil or criminal cases, as they existed and were recognized in the courts of England and American colonies prior to the adoption of the federal and state constitutions, are intended to be preserved by this guarantee of due process of law. That is what constitutes a significant portion of the law of the land. This next, excuse me, I'm checking to see. I will continue. This is important. Fundamental law is not to be changed. The colonist idea of a fundamental law was that there was a body of laws that existed from time immemorial and which could not rightly be changed by the fiat of government. In that sense, the common law in its principles and maxims comprised a body of law which was fundamental to England and formed its constitution. In this country, the great body of English law was adopted with modification and is our unwritten constitution, which we call the law of the land. This fundamental law, which constitutes the unwritten constitution, does not change with time, but operates on new conditions with the same intent and principles as it did in the past. It is like a written constitution of which Justice Sutherland says, the meaning does not change with the ebb and flow of economic events. The abrogation of this unwritten constitution by government constitutes a revolutionary act. Thus, the common law as it existed anciently in England and that which is established, was established by the formation of the American nation is the law that is to be used to both guide and limit the acts of government in all its branches and functions. 
the American doctrine regarding the law of the land was clearly not the same which prevailed in England, where the omnipotence of Parliament over the common law was generally practiced or admitted. Those who fought for this Constitution and the rights it contains held it to be unalterable by king or parliament. It is clear that the colonists adopt Lord Cope's opinion on the law of the land and that it was supreme and could not be altered. Coke had repeatedly emphasized in his institutes the danger of changing the principles of the common law. So dangerous a thing it is to shake or alter any of the rules or fundamental points of the common law, which in truth are the main pillars and supporters of the fabric of the commonwealth. And it is worthy the observation how dangerous it is to change an ancient maxim of the common law. It is a certain and true observation that the alteration of any of those maxims of the common law is most dangerous. The colonists, and especially the men who fought for independence, embraced this idea and asserted it is beyond the power of Parliament to change the fundamental law of the land, which included the common law. They held fast to the ancient laws of their ancestors. Even in 1215, when Magna Carta was signed, there was an old law of the land recognized as existing at that time. Since the turn of the century, legislatures have ignored this concept of a pre-existing fundamental law which cannot be changed by legislative act. They have not only enacted measures contrary to the fundamental law, but have specifically abrogated common law principles, maxims, procedures, rules, crimes, and punishment. This is not only dangerous, it is tyrannical and traitorous to do so, just as much as it is changing or abrogating a specific provision of the written Constitution. It has been often said that fundamental and sacred principles of the common law are regarded as an integral part of the law of the land, even though they are not stated in express terms in the state constitution. That concludes the reading for today. I'll proceed to unmute you. See if you have any questions with regard to the subject matter. Um, William, your hand's been up the whole time. William Rankin, do you have a question? My hand shows on my screen to be down. I'm sorry. Okay. Lynn Johnson? 
Well, uh, this is just uh, overwhelming is what has happened to us. And what we're learning here, and having the ability to turn this back around is uh, phenomenal. Just, you know, how are we going to do it and stop the nonsense that's going on right now without having to uh, have another, another revolution? That's a statement. Uh, question two. You know, uh, I know that we're going to we're, we're going to fight them lawfully or uh, go against them lawfully. We're not against them. Uh, the corporations. Well, yeah. Uh, but to stop them from doing what they're doing. The, the, you must be careful. By their standards, those who they are dealing with have consented to what they are doing. Even though it was by fraudulent contract, we are able to exercise the remedy and extricate ourselves and walk down to the to the land, come back down the ladder and get on the land, where we can exercise these common law principles. But they were very careful to remove the people from the land where it wasn't available to them, to the people who made the junket up the ladder. So it's, it's, they have contractual obligations albeit fraudulent, but it's one-on-one, -on -one, each individual, one at a time. It's just like when we come back down the ladder, we come down individually, one at a time. Now, the objective would be for them all to execute their remedy and come back down the ladder. Now, we have the, uh, the place and discovered that our law enforcement individual is the sheriff. Unfortunately, the sheriffs have been uh, uneducated either as well. Therefore, our goal is to educate the sheriffs. They have every, they have all the power necessary to protect every sovereign on the dry land. In addition, being just the fact that they're there in the county, the other people who have taken this other thing, they have an obligation to preserve and protect them as well. So uh, when they believe that they have somebody that's in a contract who has uh, ignored a duty they have under that contract, and have gone through appropriate legal procedures, they use the sheriff to enforce their right to compel performance. So without the consideration of the fraudulent contract, what they're doing is totally legal. 
We, I was there, been there, done that. And they have taken my property. So I had to learn what it was, what enabled them to be able to take it. It seemed so wrong. What didn't I know? What was missing? What was missing was I had signed a contract, and at the time, it was a covenant that I was compelled to honor. When Jesus said, let your yes be yes, he meant it. If you've taken an oath to do that and be that way, perform those duties in that uh, jurisdiction, you are obligated to do it. There are people who are required to pay income tax under the law. Now, when they find out that they were in a con that they're in a contract that was uh, improperly presented, that there was not full disclosure, that they were giving the rights to their uh, equity interests away to to that government. Then you say, well, I didn't know that. I would not have done it. But there's still, you must use an appropriate judicial or properly commenced a juridical process in order to come back down that ladder. You just can't arbitrarily decide it. So, yes, it's wrong in general. But it was cleverly manipulated and cleverly administered. So even in a free country, we have the perfect example of if you don't watch carefully, it will disappear. Now, we're in the position of being on the land. We have a strange requirement. If we don't work to guarantee the the property and rights of others, we may lose it ourselves. So we cannot give up in our effort to make sure that the law of the land and our juries have their proper respect and um, honor on the land. So I'm kind of saying, yes, you're right. But it's mostly education. It's mostly, and it's one-on-one, -on -one, one at a time, one at a time. If everybody brought two, and they brought two, and they brought two, it would grow. But we do have the mechanical or physical or natural constraint of having uninformed sheriffs. Uh, sheriff Mack has written some books that explain that the sheriff is America's last great hope. I believe that. They are the ones that stand on the wall and say, sorry, you cannot come in here to violate people's private property, their life, or their liberties. Bill, you got a question? If there are no more questions, we'll...
stop the recording, Chuck.